Peace be with you, church. Amen. Amen. We are continuing our series through Galatians. Uh, with Galatians chapter 4, the end of Galatians chapter 4, verse 21, into chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, so if you don't have a Bible, you can find that on the Bible under the chair in front of you, the Blue Pew Bible, on page 974. Again, that's Galatians 4, verses 21 through verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. I'm going to go ahead and jump right into this text this morning. We're going to start by reading this text together, as always, and then I'll share what I believe the main point to be as we consider it this morning, okay? So would you read along with me as I read Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 through 5, 1. <clears throat> Paul says this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I believe the main point that we ought to consider in this passage is actually the end of the passage. Verse 31 and chapter 5, verse 1. I believe this is what Paul's use of this entire allegory is pointing to, is driving to, to say this in summary. We are children of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, we're going to break this down, three points today. Just going to ask some questions about the text, okay? First, what does the law say? Second, what does the allegory teach? And third, how should the church respond? And then at the end, I actually want to give uh, some practical truths about freedom in Christ that I want you guys to take away with you this morning. So let's start with the first question together as we dive into this text. What does the law say? I'm looking at verses 21 and 23. 21, he says this. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Tell me, Paul says. 
He's putting his finger on that desire that they have to be under law, and he's rightly challenging them to reevaluate that desire. Why do you desire to be under the law? Do you really know why you desire to be under the law? Is it because you think that position is worthy of your desire? Well, the implication by his rhetorical question that follows, do you not listen to the law? The implication there is that they aren't listening. They don't listen. They are not listening to the law because if they were listening to the law, they would come to a different conclusion altogether that would then manifest itself with different desires. They wouldn't desire slavery or the law. Instead, they're listening to these Judaizers, not the law. They are pursuing after them, as the Judaizers are pursuing after them, making much of them, as we saw last week, for the wrong purposes, for their own gain, to gain some kind of following, to draw these Christians away from their freedom that they have in Christ Jesus back into the slavery that the Judaizers are living in. The law, contrary to what you are hearing from the Judaizers, Galatian church, Paul is saying, is not, it should not be attractive to you because it doesn't actually promise you the freedom that they say it promises you. If you listen to the law, you would recognize that your desire to be under the law again is unfounded. And it's contradictory to the gospel that I first brought to you. It contradicts everything that Jesus came to do and has accomplished for you on your behalf in your place. I pointed this out a few weeks ago when we walked through Galatians 4 uh, verse 9. But notice here again what Paul says. He says, you who desire to be under the law. I'd like to remind you here briefly that the human heart in its fallen condition actually desires enslavement. We desire to be in slavery. In our sin, we actually desire the darkness that we walk in because the scriptures are clear that that by nature, we hate the light. We hate the light because the light would expose our darkness, but we want our darkness and we want to be concealed in our darkness. However, when the light of Christ shines by faith into our hearts, it changes us from the inside out. Christ gives us new life from the inside, and it grows out of us. He brings us into the light as he is in the light, and our darkness has now been overcome by the light of Christ. As the scriptures make clear yet again, there is a sense in which darkness in our hearts is progressively being exposed as we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Children of God. We're exhorted in the scriptures to bring our sin out of the darkness, bring it into the light that it might become light. We're told to confess our sins to one another that we might be healed. This happens during the lifelong process of sanctification as the Holy Spirit transforms our hearts to look more and more like Jesus. But the point I want to make clear here is that even once the Lord Jesus sets us free from sin, right? Chapter 5, verse 1, right? That's where we're going. That's where we're headed. Even though he has set us free out of slavery, right? To all the things that we talked about, the world and the principalities and authorities therein, it's all of its temptations that are around us, the flesh, our own sinful tendencies, our own desires, our own temptations from within us, and then the devil and the demonic that are really active in the world trying to enslave us and draw us away, entice us to wickedness, away from the living God to pursue idols instead of him, even though the Lord has ultimately set us free free from all of those things. 
we still battle a real desire for the slavery that we once knew, that we lived in before Jesus. Now, if you would like to hear more on that, I would encourage you to go back again and listen to when we walk through Galatians 4, verse 9. That desire in our hearts for slavery that rears its ugly head is evidence of our continual daily need for Jesus. We need Jesus every day. Our need every day is to set our eyes on Christ afresh. Our need every day is to ask the Holy Spirit daily, Holy Spirit, please cleanse me. Reveal to me the sin that is hidden in the corridors of the darkness of my heart. Bring it into the light so that I can be made new, so that you can change me to look more like Jesus and less like my wickedness, less like my sin. And we'll come back to that when we get to freedom in chapter 5, verse 1. But as you see, the issue here is that the church is missing something in the law. They're missing something. Paul wants to use the law to point out something quite different really clearly for them up front. And we miss it in English, but he actually says a a little play on words here. He says uh, there in verse 21, you who desire to be under law, doesn't have the article, do you not listen to the law? Okay, the first actually I believe he intends to represent the Mosaic law, under law, the Mosaic law as we've been talking about up to this point. But the second Uh, The second word there, I think, is actually referring to generally the entire Pentateuch as a whole. And if you want to go above that, the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures as a whole, what they attest to. That would include the Torah, that would include wisdom, literature, and the prophets as the Jews would have had readily accessible. Because he does here quote from Genesis, and he also later quotes from Isaiah. So this is what Paul's scope is in mind. He's bringing people, he's drawing them out of just thinking about under law, under the Mosaic law, and he's drawing their minds out to think about what the, the scriptures teach as a whole. And he's going to use that as an allegory. If they aren't listening to the law, then what does Paul think the law says that this church should hear? And this is what he says in verse 22 and 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Okay, Paul is making a reference here back to Genesis chapter 15 through 17, and then later chapter 21. And I want to give you a brief summary real quick of what happens then to catch us up to speed in what Paul is trying to say here, although... The exact details of the story are not the point, and that's why Paul makes an allegory out of it. But I do want to give you a general idea. Genesis 15, as you'll recall, the Lord appears to Abram and makes a covenant with him. He tells him that he will give him an offspring from his own body to be his heir. It's not going to be Lot, as he thought. This is when the Lord makes what we call a unilateral covenant with Abraham. He made a promise to Abraham, and his intention was to keep the promise himself If the Lord makes a promise, he will surely do it. But then immediately in Genesis 16, we see Abram and Sarai apparently not remembering the promise that God just made to Abram that he would provide an offspring himself, but instead they took it into their own hands in the flesh. They they looked at the barrenness of Sarah's womb, and then they wrongly concluded that they needed to take matters into their own hands. This is what Paul says when he says, according to the flesh. In Galatians 4, Sarah takes her servant Hagar 
and gives her to Abram as a wife so that she can bear a child on their behalf. And guess what? Hagar bears a son, and they name him Ishmael. Is this the offspring God promised Abram, though? Well, Abram thought so. If you read the text in Genesis 17, uh, Abram tries to argue that Ishmael should be the one, his rightful heir. But God further clarifies the promise to him, and he promised that that offspring is going to come from his now barren wife. That's where the offspring is going to come from, born through promise, as Paul would say in Galatians chapter 4. Now, this is unbelievable to Abraham. So unbelievable that, again, he actually pushes back on God and recommends that the Lord would look at Ishmael as his heir. But the Lord, again, who always fulfills his promises, when he makes a promise, he's going to keep it. He says, no, the offspring I give to you by the promise that I made to you will be the heir. God, by his power alone, will be the one who gives the offspring. He alone will receive glory. He alone will receive honor and praise for keeping his promise to this man and his barren wife, even by making a child appear in a barren womb. All odds seem like they are against the Lord God, but he'll still do it. And then we get to Genesis 21. Finally, after about 13, 14 years of Ishmael growing up, the only son, no son from Sarah, Sarah bears a son. And she names him Isaac, the child of the promise. In this summary, you can see Paul weaving in themes that he's previously addressed in Galatians already in the hopes that of making it very clear to the Galatian church that they are the children of promise and the Judaizers are the children of the flesh. Interesting to note, there's probably a sense in which the Judaizers were making yet further the argument that they were children of Isaac, children of promise like Isaac. But Paul is counteracting that argument and saying, no, actually, contrary to what you think, you're not a child of promise. You're actually a child of Ishmael. So Paul here is making this argument that they're not children of the promise like they say that they are. So what does the law say that the church should prepare to hear? There are two sons. One son is born of a slave, born according to the flesh. And the other son is born of the free woman, born through promise. Paul is setting up for a significant contrast between slave and free, Ishmael and Isaac, flesh and promise, Hagar and Sarah. Which side do you want to be on, church, is what he's asking. And this is the focal point that Paul wants to expand on allegorically. So that leads us to our next question. What does the allegory teach? If that's what the law says, and Paul uses an allegory, what does this allegory teach? We're going to be in verses 24 through 31 here. Let's look at 24. Paul says, now this, what he just said in 23, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants, okay? Now, the references Paul makes to 15 through 17, Genesis verse 20, or, uh, chapter 21, they're not to be used in a one-to-one fashion. This is not Paul's point here. He intends to interpret them for the Galatian church allegorically in order to make his point clear, the point he wants to make. Now, this means if you ask Paul, Paul, what is Genesis 15 through 17, Genesis 21, what, is, what, that, what does that mean in the Torah? Well, he would not tell you that the primary meaning of that text in context is what Paul is saying here in Galatians 4. That's not the primary meaning of what it is in context. No, he would actually probably explain to you what I said in summary, but he would, he would definitely say it with more clarity and better application in its context. That's for sure. His intention here, though, is to make 
a point using, again, allegory. He's using these examples as a springboard to create a symbolic connection to his argument that he wants to make. So what is an allegory? Let's make it simple. One commentator says this. An allegory may be defined as assigning a meaning to a biblical text that does not fit its historical context. Okay? Even more simple way to put it. Paul is just using Abraham, Hagar, uh, Sarah, and their sons as an example to prove a greater point that he wants to make, a spiritual point that he wants to make. The point being, who are the real children of the promise? Those who are in Christ are the real children of the promise. He said this before multiple times, and he wants to make it really clear now, maybe even using their own arguments, their own language, as to show them who the real children of the promise are. And here in verse 24, we also get the angle at which he wants to attack them from, right? He says, these women are two covenants. Now, if the allegory was confusing a second ago, I hope this clears it up, okay? Hagar and Sarai are not in reality two covenants, and they don't represent in reality two covenants. That's not what Genesis 15 through 17 means. They don't necessarily represent two covenants. But again, Paul is using them as an example. I'm belaboring the point because I want to be clear that it's not a one-to-one. Paul is using it to make a point, okay? He's assigning meaning to them that doesn't otherwise fit so that he can then teach the church about these two covenants right here. Those covenants that Paul has in mind are the old covenant, which was centered around, guess what? The Mosaic law. The second covenant, the new covenant, which is centered around Christ alone, the Messiah who had come. We're going to jump back and forth between these verses. So I want to create a side-by-side in your mind between the two. And hopefully we don't get caught in the details, but we can look above and see the bigger picture there. And Lord willing, the allegory teaches us uh, what it was intended to teach us, and we can see it a little bit clearer, okay? So two categories, new covenant, old covenant. On the one side, old covenant, new covenant on the other side. And there's three things I want to point out here in the text that I think Paul contrasts between the two of them. The first one is this. The old covenant bears children for slavery. The new covenant bears children for freedom, okay? Verse 24 matches up with verse 27 here. You're going to see him coming down. It's like a chiasm. That's a big word they use to just show that it's reflecting uh, the points that he's trying to make. The old bears children for slavery. The new bears children for freedom, okay? Look at verse 24 first. He says, one, that's one covenant, is from Mount Sinai. Okay, here, here we see Paul's connection to the old covenant. Mount Sinai is the place where Moses met with the Lord on behalf of Israel, where Moses received the law from God that he then gave to Israel. Paul says this covenant from Mount Sinai is bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, if any of you like math, I know it's a stretch to expect something like that. I know it. But if any of you like math, you know that this is what a mathematician calls showing your work. You're showing your work. Paul is showing how he's getting from the old covenant all the way to Hagar, how he's making that connection. Hagar is an allegory. This represents the old covenant made by the Lord with Israel at Mount Sinai. The law particularly that they want to be under is in view right here. But what does this mean? Bearing children for slavery. I think this is what it means. I mean that these Judaizers... As they continue to do what they're doing, trying to convince Christians and others outside of Christ to take on the yoke of the law in order to live a God-honoring and even a Christian life, they are actually bearing more children for slavery. They're producing slaves. This is not freedom. Christians have been set free, as we'll see in a few, coming up 
Um, we'll see in a few coming up under the law, though, brings them back into slavery. And as the Judaizers continue to share the message that they share, the only thing that it's going to produce is more and more and more slaves. In contrast to this, though, we see in verse 21, where Paul, referencing the Jerusalem above, uses the language of childbearing from Isaiah. In this case, the desolate one, Sarah, will bear even more children than Hagar. He's quoting Isaiah 54, 1. But let me read 2 and 3 in their context, and you're actually going to see that connection that Paul makes one-to-one. The law bears children for slavery, but guess what? The new covenant bears children for freedom. This is what Isaiah 54 says. He says, Sing, O barren one. You who do not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud. You have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more. That's bearing language. will be more than the children of her who was married, says the Lord. Verse 2, enlarge, your pla- enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Do you hear what Paul is saying? You hear actually what Isaiah is saying in context? He's saying, enlarge your tent, stretch out your habitations, lengthen your cords. Isaiah is prophesying of the day when the Lord's people will expand and grow beyond measure. Verse 3, the offspring of God will possess the nations. What does this mean? It means Jesus is bearing children for freedom. Jesus is bearing children for freedom, and he's not just doing so with the few, church, hear me. He's doing so with the many. He's not just doing so with the few here. He's doing so with the many in the nations. Jesus is at work by his Holy Spirit in this world, and he's called us to be a part of that. He's called us to be a part of his great commission, to make his name known, to share his glory with the nations so that they can hear the message of salvation and believe because the whole purpose of it all is so that the nations can be brought into the people of God. The people of God will grow, expand your habitations, lengthen your cords, And this is a promise. So church, let me ask you the question. Do you want to participate in that commission? Do you want to participate in God's work? He's already working in the world and he's called us to be a part of it. God will always fulfill what he has promised. But do you want to be a part of that? Or do you want to sit on the sideline and watch it? God has called you and I, both of us, to be involved in his mission. And he's done so out of love and grace. How exciting it is to be involved in his mission. Also, something to think about. Remember, the message we proclaim is not one of bondage, but of freedom. I've asked a lot of people what they think about Christianity, and and, uh, I've heard many say that Christianity is just a set of moral rules. I actually heard someone recently tell me, I asked him, what do you get when you go to church? And he said, moralism, just very clearly. But is that what Christianity is about, moralism? No, that's in bondage. That's enslaving. Telling someone who's already trying to seek after God and do whatever they can to get to heaven to then go and just be a moral person and that's the answer to get to heaven, that's not the gospel. And that's enslaving, just as enslaving as any other world religion that would tell someone that they need to just go and do all these five little steps and perform this little ritual and light this little candle and bow before this little idol. And if you just do all those things, make sure you do them five times a day, ten times a week, six times in a year, then you're going to go to heaven. Yes! But that's not the gospel. 
That's not the gospel, and it's actually enslaving when we come to someone and say, hey, here's the the message of Christianity. Be a good person. Do all these things. Go to church. Read your Bible. Pray. Is that the immediate message that they need to hear? All those things are good, but is that the immediate message of the gospel? No. The immediate message is that you are enslaved to your sin, and only Jesus can set you free, friend. Only Jesus can save you. When you share the gospel, does it sound more like bringing new laws into someone else's life that they need to follow for a better life? Or does it sound like Jesus alone can save you from your slavery and your bondage to try to earn your way to heaven? Jesus alone can give you the relationship that you desire with God by faith. You don't have to work your way to heaven. Work your way into a relationship with God. Jesus can do that for you. How does the gospel sound when you share it? It's also scary to think that there's often a temptation for us to share the gospel through the lens in which we believe it sometimes, a false lens in which we believe it. Not the true gospel that sets us free and frees us, but some sort of gospel that then turns around and enslaves us and says, hey, you need to achieve all these kinds of standards in order to be right with God, in order to grow in your relationship with Jesus. You need to do all this stuff in order to show people that you love Jesus and all this, instead of coming to them and saying, hey, just look to Jesus. Look to him. He will meet you where you are and set you free there. Let's not be ones, we, we, we can be tempted in many kinds of ways to believe false gospels in our own heart, in our own mind, right? Legalism, nomism, all these kinds of things. But let us not be people who then share those false gospels that we're tempted towards with other people pretending that that's the gospel because that's not going to free them. That's just going to enslave them even further. Only Jesus can set them free. We share a free gospel that promises true freedom to everyone without partiality because our God, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, the Bible says that he shows no partiality to anyone and he is ready to save. He actually desires to save any and all from any nation, tribe, or tongue who goes to him and wants to come to him for freedom. He will set them free. Point them to Jesus. Second thing we see in this allegory is that the old is currently in slavery, the new is currently in freedom. That's verse 25 and verse 26. Verse 25 says, Now Hagar is, you could translate that, represents, that's more language, allegorical language. Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds, again, he's making it really clear, this is an allegory, to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Paul's now putting a name with a place. Arabia, okay, is where Mount Sinai is located. But why is that significant? I think what Paul's trying to do here, actually, is make the case that those who are children of Hagar are actually still out in the wilderness. They're actually still out there in Arabia. The Lord met Moses on Sinai. This is just after he freed them from slavery to Egypt, right? And they go into the wilderness. He makes a covenant with them that they might walk in his ways. And if they would just obey him, he would bless them. But what did they do immediately when the tablets were brought down? They disobeyed God. They went after their own idols and God judged them. Forty years in the wilderness, they would walk away, walk around. And that's the contrast, I think, Paul says here, really briefly. Coming under law would then mean you are still out in the wilderness like Israel is out in the wilderness in Arabia. You haven't received any promise. You aren't an heir. You're still in slavery if you want to be under the law. And this would come as a strong reminder to the church, let alone a strong push against the Judaizers. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free 
and she is our mother. Now you see the contrast. The present Jerusalem, the Jerusalem today, that was there in this time, those who go after the law, who are under the law, are currently in slavery. But those in Christ are citizens. They are free in the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is above. She is our mother. Paul points our eyes not to what we see in front of us, not to what seems like it's desirable for us, but he points our eyes past it up to heaven to a city that is made without hands that we don't see yet. The city we know is coming because Christ Jesus said he was bringing it when he's going to return. Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection has inaugurated the new and the final era of redemptive history. He's brought the kingdom of God already right now. It is expanding through the world and we saw already all over the world as Christ exercises his rule, his reign, his dominion, his authority from his throne in heaven right now. He's inaugurated his kingdom right now, but it's not yet come because of Christ our king. And what he's done for us, we have been made children of the Jerusalem above, free. What we read about in Revelation, what we read this morning in our call to worship, this heavenly Jerusalem, picture it with me, this this heavenly Jerusalem, this, this city of God, this perfect city is ours already. It's already ours in Christ. There we will dwell in the presence of God for eternity on his holy hill, Mount Zion, where God himself is dwelling right now. At the same time, in heaven, he is in us by his Holy Spirit as temples of the living God that he has made new to dwell in for eternity. And then one day, we're going to see him face to face. And that day, we'll be with him forever in the new place that he said he's going to go and prepare for us a place for people of every tribe, nation, and tongue, a place for any and everyone who would call on Christ by faith, a place where there will be no more sin, no more death, not even a tear, church, shall be shed from our eyes because the Lord will wipe every tear from our faces in this new place. But the amazing, mind-blowing news for us today is that Christ has brought heaven down to us. We can taste it right now. First, by faith in him. By faith in him, we can taste of the new heavenly realities that we will experience one day. And then walking in the freedom now that he's producing in us by the Holy Spirit. We taste freedom right now in Jesus that we'll one day have fully when we see him face to face. But what does this mean? Well, the really clear application. If you don't know Christ today, if you want freedom, if that freedom sounds attractive to be free from the things that enslave you. You feel, you feel so overwhelmed. You feel so bogged down by the cares of this world. Your, your thoughts never seem to relax. You stay up late at night. You think over and over and over about your life. If you want freedom from all of these things, freedom from trying to earn your way to heaven that you could never achieve by your own merit, if you want freedom from that, the Jerusalem above must be your mother. Not the present Jerusalem, not the law representing the Judaizers enslave themselves under the same law's demands. If you want freedom, you don't take on the law's demands. You don't create laws over yourself, Christian. You don't search for freedom in the bondage of other religions that give you a formula on how you get there to heaven. Jesus has brought it here and will himself bring us there with him by faith. But it's only by faith. And this is the message that you share with your friends. 
This is a message that you share with your family, people who are searching for God in a variety of ways, but they don't know the one true God and his son, the Lord Jesus. The author of Hebrews tells us that the old covenant is obsolete and it's passing away, Hebrews chapter 8, because the new covenant that Jesus has already inaugurated is here and it's better. In fact, his covenant, we actually find the fulfillment of the old in his covenant. Therefore, there is no need whatsoever to go, excuse me, to go back to this old covenant when we have Jesus who has satisfied the law's requirements in our place and gives it to us for free as a gift and then works it out in us by faith, by the Spirit. What are you depending on this morning to have a right relationship with God, to get to heaven, if that's the way you want to put it? Are you depending on moralism? Are you just trying to be the best person you can be? Maybe you'll get to heaven. Are you depending on law-keeping? Maybe you even guise that as Christianity, and you just try to keep the Ten Commandments to try to be a Christian. But I would argue with you that that's not Christianity, friend. It's enslaving. Is there a specific code you're even trying to follow that you think will get you closer to God, closer to heaven? My encouragement to you, the only way to get close is to look at Jesus. Know Jesus. Walk with Jesus. He alone has satisfied all that is required for us to be in a right relationship with our creator, having paid for all of our sin in full, removed the debt that we owe to our God so that he could reconcile us to himself. Here's something else. Maybe you're a Christian. What are you depending on to have a right relationship with God in the day-to-day? Is it Christ and Christ alone? Or do you, too, find yourself pulled away to create some sort of standard, some sort of law that you must follow to think that you're right with God? Is it maybe how holy you try to be? Maybe you set standards for how holy you should be. Maybe you set a standard for how much you read, and if you don't read that much, you feel ungodly. Or maybe, maybe you set a standard for yourself on how much you should pray. Some, some quantifiable, tangible standard that you feel content with if you reach it. But what is that standard? The same standard that if you don't reach it, you feel lost and hopeless like a sheep without a shepherd. What is that same standard that if you don't reach it, condemns you and tells you that you're not a child of God, that you're not close to God? What is that standard that you're trying to achieve for yourself to be close to God? Let me ask you, is it really bringing you close to God? Or is it enslaving you? Brother or sister, you are free. In your battle with sin and your walk with the Lord, you look to Jesus. You abide in Jesus. You obey Jesus. You follow Jesus. You walk with Jesus in the day to day. And if you walk with Jesus in the day to day, you will enjoy and walk in a close relationship with your Lord and your God. And it's not by your merit. It's by how close you walk to Jesus. How close are you walking with him? Remember this, how good you were didn't start the relationship with God. And how good you continue to be isn't going to keep it. Christ alone starts and maintains and will bring to completion that relationship that you have with the Lord Jesus. So look to him. When those standards arise, recognize him, call him out. I'm trying to achieve some form of righteousness here, but Jesus has already achieved everything that I'll ever need. I'm going to look to him. 
I'm going to look to Jesus to walk in obedience to the Father. Number three, another thing, the last thing that we learn about Old and New Covenant. Those under the old are children of the flesh. Those under the new are children of promise. I get that in verse 28, uh, working backwards. We learn who the children of promise are, so therefore it's obvious people of the Old Covenant are the children of the flesh. Verse 28 says, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. Galatian churches, Paul says, you are children of promise. The Judaizers are children of the flesh. By extension, anyone who seeks to enslave you with some form of something apart from Jesus is according to the flesh. And this should connect us to everything Paul has said up to this point. The children of the promise are those who have received the Holy Spirit of God through faith in the Son of God alone, Jesus Christ. They do not receive the Spirit by works of the law, do they? They don't. They receive the Spirit through faith in Christ alone. Christ makes us into sons and heirs. He is the promised offspring through whom we are now counted as offspring, children of the promise. It is those who have faith in Christ that are the children of promise, the children of the free woman here, like Isaac, like Isaac, born by the power of the Holy Spirit, not manufactured by the hands of men. We cannot and we must not take our justification away from God and put it into our own hands. To pursue a right relationship with God by your own works and whatever those works look like. As if you can gain God's favor by how good you look is evidence of your slavery. We pursue relationship with God on his terms. And his terms are so good and gracious and merciful and freeing. God, our God has graciously orchestrated history in such a way that he would give us freedom for free, that he would justify us in Christ for free as a gift given to us, not to give a payment and response, but as a free gift that we just receive if we ask for it because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. How often do you remember that, saint? How often do you think about that in the day-to-day, that your salvation is a gift, you didn't work for it then, and you're not working for it now? You're not working for it now. Jesus is working in you, for you, for it now. Not you. He is working in us by his spirit. So why, though, does Paul go through the pains of trying to convince the Galatians that they're children of promise? He's already done that multiple times. He's tried it over and over again. Well, it's actually to close the allegory out with the main point, verse 29 through 31. So back down to earth. We looked at the new heavens and the new earth, and this is where... Our eyes should be regularly to Jesus who sits enthroned on high, our glorious Lord and Savior. But now, back down to earth with Paul, Paul brings up another point. Things haven't changed for the children of God here. Nothing's changed. Nothing's new under the sun. Which brings us to this final question. How should the church respond to this? Verse 29 through 5.1. Given that Paul has made it explicitly clear, not implicitly, explicitly clear at this point in this letter that Christians in general, the Galatian churches in particular, are the children of the free woman and the Judaizers are the children of the flesh. How should the church respond based on Paul's concluding comments and his exhortations here? Let's look at verse 29 through 31 and then we'll break this down. Verse 29, but just as at that time, just like, just like then, okay, so it's the same then as it is now. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh 
persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. One thing, one proper response here in verse 29 is that the church should recognize and remember who they are in Christ. Recognize and remember who you are in Christ. You are a child of promise. Remember your status before God, the new status that Christ has given you as Christ himself has sprinkled, has covered you in his blood as a sacrifice for you and your sin to make you right with God and has now sealed you by his Holy Spirit. And I think that is the first and most important application of verses 29 through 31 right here. This is what Paul, his immediate concern is. Here he quotes Genesis 21.10, where Sarah, after hearing Ishmael laughing at Isaac, she equates, he equates that with persecution. After he hears her laughing at Isaac, she makes the statement, cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Well, the purpose of Paul's quoting Genesis 21 here, 9 and 10, let me say this, it's not to encourage the church to cast out the Judaizers, okay? I think the focus here since 21 has been to listen to the law. Do you listen to the law? What's the law saying? Here in the law, we read who the true inheritors are. That's the focus. It's not, the true inheritors are not adherents to the law, law keepers, the Judaizers. This is yet another exhortation to the church to judge rightly between themselves and the Judaizers as they've properly listened to the law now, they should see that it is those of faith in Christ who are children of the free woman, like Isaac, heirs according to the promise. The Judaizers, on the other hand, yes, they will ultimately be cast out, but not by the church, meaning they will not inherit the, the same inheritance with the children of the promise. The exhortation here is not for the church to cast them out, particularly the application is something else. Therefore, I believe the correct response, actually, what, what's the proper application here that Paul is trying to say? Is to remember by faith in Christ, you, church, are the rightful children of promise in Christ. The Judaizers are not. They are not. Don't listen to them. Don't succumb to their messages. You are the rightful inheritors of the promise. Paul's initial question, remember, do you not listen to the law? He now couples that with his reminder to remember what the scriptures teach us. Remember what they say. He focuses on the who. He focuses on who the real children of God are. And there's a call there to remember what is true. Remember who the promise is for. And then in that, bear up under the persecution that you will inevitably face. Persevere through persecution as you remember who it is that really inherits the kingdom of God. And that's you. Now to be clear, some people take this exhortation to cast out. This is why I want to clarify. Some people take that to, to make the argument that you're supposed to cast out, in this extent, false teachers from the church. But the reality, the rest of the New Testament never gives us any encouragement to cast out false, false teachers with this kind of language. Either those who they discover are in authority, false teachers they discover there, 
or those they discover in their midst as sheep among them. The New Testament does, however, over and over and over repeatedly exhort the church to, quote, have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with those kind of people, those kinds of false teachers. Because casting out in this context, I think, with everything he talks about with the New Jerusalem, with Christ inaugurating his kingdom, I think this casting out language that he's using here has eschatological overtones to it. It's actually God being the one who separates the wheat from the chaff. God being the one who distinguishes who are the children of the promise and who are the children of the flesh. God being the one, as Jesus says really clearly, who will cast the liar, the adulterer, and all the list into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. False teachers, though, in the church, if they continue in their error and their rejection of the light of Christ, they will be cast out in utter darkness by Jesus. And in many ways, the church is called instead to plead with them, to plead with them, to encourage them like everyone else. Encourage these people who are teaching falsely. No, that's not the gospel. This is the gospel. Turn away from all these things that you're teaching and turn to Jesus. If you believe the one true Jesus, you too, though you might be a false teacher now, you too can be saved by Jesus. Do you know that Jesus wants to save false teachers too? You know that Jesus wants to save the false prophet, the liar, the hypocrite, whatever you want to name. Jesus' heart is to save the lost. Are they lost? Yes. And so it's incumbent upon us to share the gospel, even there. Even with the threat of hearing things that are false, share the gospel. Meet them with the gospel there. What is true, even if they're in our midst. We may have nothing to do with them. But 2 Timothy tells us, don't consider them as an enemy, but consider them as a brother. How can you consider a false teacher as a brother? Teach him what's right. Encourage him with the gospel. Combat what is evil and what is dark with what is true. The church is never to listen to false teachers, but at the same time, I do think we are called to correct and encourage them toward the truth like we would be encouraged to do with anyone else. Now, another response by implication, this is number two, verse 29. Be prepared, church, for persecution. Be prepared for persecution. As it was then, so it is now. Don't be surprised when it comes, when that fiery trial comes upon you. The children of God have always been persecuted, as is evidence in the account of even Hagar and Sarah. So be prepared. Don't be surprised when it comes. And here we learn where it comes from. It comes from all of those who are born according to the flesh. Those are the persecutors. And the persecutor are the ones born according to the Spirit. Those alienated from Christ will inevitably, in some form or another, persecute those who are united to him by faith. 2 Timothy 3, 12-13 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Persecution's going to come. It's just a matter of when. It's always been this way for God's people. We should not expect any different. And one thing that I do think, though, that we should check ourselves with is just a little question that I want to ask you. Have you been persecuted lately? Have you been persecuted lately? Text says, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. This is a promise. This can range persecution can range from outright rejection and hatred. Just 
scoffing from someone who hates you and hates Jesus. Or it could come all the way down to a family member who scoffs at you because you pray before your meal. Have you been persecuted lately? And I would encourage you, if you have, glory to God. Glory to God that you have the honor to bear with Christ the reproaches that he bore for us when he came to this world for us. Glory to God that you bear reproach for the name of Jesus. Do you see that as an honor? What an honor to be counted with him. What an honor to be reproached, scoffed, spit upon for our Jesus who has done everything, moved heaven and earth to save us from our sin. What an honor. But let me ask you this as well. If you haven't, and now I'm not saying that this is, a clear, this is clear evidence. This is one-to-one. I'm not saying that if you haven't been persecuted, then this is true. But I'm just asking the question. You can ask yourself. I want to pose this so you consider it. If you haven't, ask yourself, are you living a godly life for the Lord in front of people who don't love him or believe him or have a relationship with him or who would know if you did would persecute you? Do you live a godly life in front of them? Or do you assimilate to what they do? Do you stand for truth when you have conversations with them? Or do you just let the conversation go on by to other things? Let's let our lives inside the church when we gather and outside the church be the same life. Let's not let the life we live inside the church look different than the life we live outside as if you've got to be pious. You see the message that we teach the world? You've got to be pious to be in this room, but out there you can just live however you want. Is that the gospel? That's not the gospel. Let's let it match. <clears throat> Let's let our lives at home with our family devotions and our prayer with our children and how much we open God's word and how much we give glory to God before our meals and before bedtime and when we rise and before we leave the house when we pray over our families and we care for them, we love them to Jesus. Let's let our lives as Christians at home look the same way as our lives as Christians at work, does it look the same? Do you pray before your meal at work? Do you, do you give glory to God when something good happens to you and you get a raise when someone else gets something good? Do you give glory to God for something good that they've received? Does your life match at work what it, what it says at home? If you're devoted in these places, you need to be devoted everywhere else to the Lord Jesus. We don't want to live two lives. That's hypocrisy, right? We want to live one life. And that one life we want to live, we want to live it to the glory of God and make Jesus known in whatever capacity that we can with whatever he gives us and entrusts us, the little talents that he gives us each and every day. Are you going to do with this today what I've called you to do? Number three, another correct response. Correct response, verse 30, 31. Correct response to persecution. Hear me, church. It's to not look at the persecution. It's to look forward to what we will receive. Look forward, an inheritance, a new Jerusalem that awaits for us with our Lord. In times of persecution, whatever that might look like for you, whether at home or at work or wherever, I would even broaden this out, not just persecution from the outside, but persecution from temptation, persecution from the devil himself, persecution from you, the old man who lives inside of you, who seeks to ensnare you every single day with things that you've died from and things that you're trying to live for, for the Lord Jesus. 
yes, I do believe to an extent we can be persecutors of self. You may not like that word there. Maybe accuser, maybe self-condemnation might work better for you. But nevertheless, my flesh wants to kill me too. My flesh wants to grieve the spirit that lives in me. My flesh wants to remind me of the old man who is dead and buried in Christ Jesus instead of the new man who is new and free in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we bear up under persecution, whether that's from the inside, believing lies, from the outside temptations, or from spiritual things that we do not see? How do we bear up under persecution when it inevitably comes? And I would encourage you, if you've never considered this, I would encourage you this morning, myself included, when you face persecution, look to Jesus. Look forward to the day that is coming. Look forward to your inheritance. Look forward to the day when you will stand before the throne of God and when you will enter in through that narrow gate because that narrow gate is Jesus and he has brought you down that narrow path for a long time as you've walked beside him. Look forward to the loving embrace of your Lord. Think of Stephen. He was being martyred for his Lord. God blessed him with a special grace. At the time of his death, the Lord opened up the heavens with a vision. And what does he say? What does he say? He says, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen's Lord was willing to stand to receive him. He stood and received him as the first martyr for himself. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Look forward to that day, church. Look forward to that day and the things of this world, including persecution. What does the song say? The things of this world will grow strangely dim in the eye of his glory and grace. Thank you, Jesus. Look forward to Jesus, church. And the fourth thing, we get to chapter 5, verse 1. Here it is. Right response? Remember this. You are free, church. You are free, so stand in your freedom and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. No No matter how tempting it might be, no matter how quantitative it is, no matter how much you can measure it up against yourself, don't turn to it. Look to Jesus. Here's Paul's final call, his final imperative to the church. This is the point of everything that he said. He's been drawing it to this point, bringing up the law, bringing up the allegory, and the responses that the church, that should, they should have. Stand, he says. Don't submit to slavery. What you have is better. What you have is true. This is what the law tells you you should have. Freedom, right? Listen to the law. Christ has set you free for freedom. Don't Submit to the yoke of slavery. Peter's words in Acts 15 are similar. What does he say? He says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. If you want freedom, the answer is not the yoke of slavery. If you want freedom, the answer is Jesus and Jesus alone. If your brother or sister comes to you enslaved, the answer is not a list of things that they ought to do. The answer is look to Jesus, brother. Look to Jesus, sister. You can't work your way back, right? You need to come to Jesus. 
He alone can set you free. There is no bondage there. He says of himself, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it is easy. My burden is light. How glorious of a truth is that, that the Lord's yoke is easy. His burden is light. Don't you need that this morning? Now, as we bring our time to a close, there are five truths I want to lay before you, make them really clear about the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Five truths that I pray, I pray would take root in your heart because we, church, so desperately need to remind ourselves of these things regularly lest we stumble and we fall and we find ourselves actually living in bondage rather than living in the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. Five truths. Number one, Jesus died and rose for your freedom. Jesus died and rose for your freedom. Your freedom came at great cost. Christ's sacrifice of his own life, blood poured out on a tree. He bore the sins of the world so that you could have freedom. Jesus died so that you could be free. No greater sacrifice has ever existed than this. That he should come in bondage to release you. Christ has set us free because he himself took on the yoke of slavery that no one before or ever after could bear it. And Jesus alone fulfilled its requirements. And then he died on the cross as a curse for us, laying his life down for us that we might receive life from him. The scriptures are clear that unless we have died with Jesus, we've not been set free. But once we have died with Jesus, we are free indeed. If you've not died with Jesus by faith and trust in him, children, you've got to look to Jesus. He alone can free you. Listen to what he says. Listen to what the Lord says. And I pray that it just it comforts your heart in every way possible. John chapter 8, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, he said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus died and rose for your freedom. Second thing, Jesus alone can set you free from slavery. Jesus alone, to anything that enslaves you. Hear me when I say this. We talked a few weeks ago about this, but to be clear up front, Jesus, according to Galatians, frees you from the present evil age. According to the New Testament, from this present evil darkness, he frees you from bondage to sin and death. He alone can free you from the world, its demands, its requirements of you, the flesh and how much standards it creates for you to separate you from your God. He he frees you from the devil and the devil's oppression and the devil's influence and his snare that wraps around your neck ready to take your life. He frees you from legalism, church. Like you must earn your way to God. He frees you from that bondage. He frees you from gnomism. After becoming a Christian, feeling like you got to keep some kind of law to be a Christian or to grow in your relationship with God, he frees you from that. You don't have to create standards that you or somebody, as well-intended as it was, created for you to follow, for you to be a good Christian. I don't know one good Christian. We are all lost and hopeless like sheep without a shepherd, and we need Jesus to cleanse us and forgive us of our sins. We can't work anywhere closer to be good 
apart from faith in the Lord Jesus. Jesus doesn't want you to be enslaved, not even to this thought of goodness. He alone can free you, and he does so out of a deep love and a deep compassion because he is our merciful and our gracious God. You can't forge freedom. You can pretend you have freedom, but that doesn't mean that you do. 2 Peter 2 says, whatever overcomes you, to that you are enslaved. Do you hear that? Whatever overcomes you, to that you are enslaved. What are you overcome by this morning? Are you overcome by Christ this morning? Or are you overcome by your sin? Are you overcome by Anger, frustration, or bitterness, or lust, or adultery, whatever it is across the spectrum, lying, sinning, manipulating, whatever it is that you are overcome by, let me ask you, do you want to be overcome by those things? Or do you want to be overcome by the Lord Jesus? Because whatever overcomes us, to that we are enslaved. So my encouragement to you, submit yourself to the Lord. The more we look to Jesus, the more we look like Jesus. We behold what we become, one theologian once said. The further, hear me, the further you bend your knee to his power and his glory and his authority at work inside of you as your Lord by his spirit, the freer you become. The freer you become because of Jesus. Free not to do whatever you want to do in your sin. You've been given a new heart, right? Free to love God. Free to obey God, free to honor God as Lord, free to enjoy God, free to love one another, his children, free to walk in the newness of life, free from sin, free from bondage, free from death, free from temptations to sin, free from anything that seeks to enslave you and drag you all the way down to hell away from God. You're free from all of it. If you want to be free, go to Jesus. He can remove your chains today, whatever those chains are. And every time the world, the flesh, the devil tries to put them back on your wrist, Jesus' hand is there taking them away. He will not let you be enslaved again. Hear me, saint. The closer you walk with Jesus, not lip service, not how much you say you love Jesus, how close you say you walk with him, how much you do, not just one day of the week, but a regular, ongoing devotion to Christ as your Lord and your Savior, as you walk closer to your Redeemer, your friend, the closer you walk to Jesus, the freer you will become in Him. Abide in Him. Number three, Jesus' desire is for you, Christian, to live in freedom. His desire is for you to live in freedom. Otherwise, why would He set you free? Christ's desire is your freedom, complete freedom from every sin, every form of legalism or gnomism that you think will get you closer to God. He frees you from all of these expectations that your family, your friends, maybe even your church puts on you that are not according to the scriptures. He frees you from all of that so that you can be free because he desires you to be free. And he progressively makes you freer and freer by his spirit as you walk close to him. Number four, Jesus is the only firm foundation that you can stand on. All other ground is shifting sand. Which is to say that if you try to walk close to Jesus again, by your own power and your own strength, you will fail. 
You must stand firm on the power and the authority of Jesus, your Lord and your Savior. You must stand firm in the freedom that he's already purchased for you and given to you by faith, or you will walk in slavery. If you don't stand firm in your freedom, you will walk in slavery. So remember, you are free from your sin. You're free from all of it, no matter what it was. You don't have to stay there. So let me, t- let me say this as well. If you feel bound by some sort of sin, I just want to encourage you. I want to open up a fresh window for you. You don't have to walk in it anymore. You don't have to. Even if you came in and there is a sin pattern that you've had for years, I'm going to tell you today, the good news of the gospel is you don't got to continue one more day. That's how much freedom Christ offers you in him. You can be free from whatever sin pattern that is, whatever sin is enslaving you. Stop believing the lie that you have to keep doing it. Or you're so stuck in this rut that you can't get out. Jesus can free you. Jesus, by the Spirit, gives you the power to overcome sin, all sin. If you do it by your own strength, you will fail. And last one, number five. Jesus and his freedom are your yoke, not slavery. You do not have to submit to slavery. Not for one second in your daily battle with sin do you submit to sin. Not for one day as your battle feels like it becomes a daily war do you submit to sin. And not for a lifelong battle with sin as some sins may feel like you have, they have you in chains. You do not have to submit to them. You are in Christ by faith, brother or sister. You're not enslaved to your sin. And I would encourage you, repent anew and afresh and come to Jesus whose yoke is easy and burden is light. He wants that for you to be free. We don't look at a list of demands for the sake of righteousness. We look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who has made us righteous and by his spirit in us will produce all kinds of righteousness, not by the letter, but by keeping our eyes on him and abiding in him. So don't submit to the yoke of slavery that they're lying to you about. Rather, walk in the freedom of Christ. Now that you are free, your new status in Christ is free. And the Holy Spirit testifies to that freedom. Stand in that freedom, saint, in Christ and the freedom he gives to you with the power that you have from Jesus. Don't submit again to sin and slavery. Because the words of 2 Peter ring true. They, Judaizers, promise freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Let us be overcome with Jesus. Let us be overcome with Jesus. Let's pray.